All right, so we are continuing with our eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel. If you're keeping score, we're on element 7P, subletter H. Uh, and this is the 125th lesson out of in the eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel, which I think is going to be around 160 by the time we finish. Maybe, maybe less than that, I hope. Uh, we're simultaneously doing uh, the Baptizing the Holy Spirit series. A longer version, it's kind of following the same pattern as our short four-part version that we take people through when we're preparing them to get baptized in the Spirit. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. Uh, you know, we were just talking to someone just yesterday who uh, God prayed for to get baptized in the Spirit with another group, which is fine, of course, but no instruction, just an altar call sort of situation. And here, years after he's baptized in the Spirit, he doesn't really know if he is. So that uh, you don't want that to happen. So make sure you learn plenty before you get prayed for. So, <clears throat> and that your faith gets built up. So uh, the front less, the front side of, we're going to whip right through. The uh, eight essential elements are listed in Roman numeral one. In element seven is called the first five steps that you take when you enter Christ's kingdom. Um, because of the spiritual confusion and the age of unbelief and the complacent watered-down Christianity of today, I doubt we'll be able to get back to the biblical pattern. Most people in the Bible, all, all the cases we read about in the Bible, uh, when someone came to Christ, they experienced all five of these steps in the first few days of being a Christian. Uh, these days, I'm really happy if we can help someone get all five of these steps in the first year of being a Christian. And especially when we meet people who are partially converted, uh, raised in other Christian traditions, been taught against the spiritual gifts being for today, or any other kind of confusion. Um, I did not know till I was about uh, six months a Christian that there were lots of sincere Christians who do not cast out demons, do not speak in tongues, do not prophesy, do not have expectations of miracles. <coughs> Uh, in their just normal walk with God. Um, but because of the enlightenment and because of Western natural-mindedness, that's actually the uh, experience of the majority of Christians in America. Now, that's not the experience of the majority of Christians in some other parts of the world, but it is the experience of the majority of Christians in America. And that, you know, the... The spirit of unbelief, you know, in Matthew it says that Jesus was not able to do many miracles when he went to Nazareth because of their unbelief. So even Jesus was hindered by the obstacle of unbelief, which we're actually going to talk about next week. Now, the, uh, again, the five steps for entering the kingdom are listed in Roman numeral 2. You should actually, if you have not experienced all five steps of the, in, in your Christian life, you should be studying those five steps. And you should make a determination that I'm going to get through these five steps. Because uh, what happens today is m most Christians have experienced steps one and two. Very few have experienced steps three, four, and five. And that's why if you read Paul's definition of a baby Christian in 1 Corinthians uh, for instance, and he tells them he has to give them milk and not solid food, uh, 
because of their immaturity, and if you look at the different ways he describes their immaturity, they describe American Christianity. People often say, why does 1 Corinthians, is it the only epistle that deals in detail with the spiritual gifts, the nine gifts of the Spirit, and the sevenfold ministry gifts, and the, and the gifts of motivation and temperament? Because the other churches in the New Testament had long since learned all those things. That was not what the Ephesians needed to hear. That would be a little bit like if I said, now John Bradbury, I'd like to spend some time with you and let's, just, let's study the ABCs as building blocks of reading. He'd be like, well, thank you very much, but you know, I've been reading for quite a long time, right? I don't need to review the ABCs. So that's really why you only see certain topics in 1 Corinthians because they were by far the most immature church of the New Testament with the most ungodly, pagan, immoral city and it was uh, the ungodly, pagan, immoral lifestyle of the city had not really gotten out of the church yet. If you remember, Paul spent 18 months in Corinth and then due to the persecutions and so forth of the Judaizers, he had to flee. So Corinth is the only letter, if you notice, it's not addressed to the elders and deacons like some of Paul's other letters because there aren't any elders and deacons yet in Corinth. You know, we uh, officially set in place our first elder after two years here. And then it was, uh, let me think, seven full years before we set a second and third elder in place. And uh, hopefully by next fall we'll be... uh, setting three other elders in place, and then we're working toward that. So um, just be aware of that when you're reading. Like one of the things that's happened today is people read proof text out of context instead of reading the letters in their context. When you read a New Testament letter, read about who it was sent to, what the circumstances are. Identify the major themes and points and understand the chronology of the New Testament and so forth. Uh, that's why you, you really need to be very, very founded in the four Gospels in the book of Acts as the backdrop of understanding the epistles. So, uh, this part of the series, uh, which is the section C of the Holy Spirit series, imparting and receiving the baptism in the Spirit, we're dealing with five common hindrances to being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to talk about number four, The five of them are listed at the bottom of your first page. And we've talked about three of them so far. And since I couldn't be with us last week, I had uh, Stephen talk about this same subject last week, so you got two weeks in a row. Because really, one of the things that you got to come to understand is that we have been Greekified. Uh, We have become westernized. And so what we delight in is hearing something new that we never heard before. When the Bible's orientation is hearing it until it becomes flesh, until it's your way of life, till you're living and doing it. That's why Paul says in Romans 1 and Romans 15 that he was given grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So when do we need to start, stop talking about unforgiveness and bitterness? When no one in the church has any unforgiveness or bitterness. When do we need to stop talking about being baptized in the Spirit? When everyone's baptized in the Spirit? When do we not need to talk, stop talking about building the good habits of how to study Scripture, both in quantity and quality of approach and 
so forth, when everybody in the, in the uh, church is a biblical scholar. And we cannot go on with this spectator-type Christianity where the reason we go to a church is because uh, the building's nice or the sound system's professional, the worship band is, is high-quality professional, whether there's anointing or not uh, is the secondary, and where the pastor's a good speaker and so forth, and we get entertained for a couple hours. We have to get the approach of I'm being called to be equipped to become a fruit-bearing disciple. Who are you leading forward in the kingdom of God? And, and are you in always increasing your skills and ability to do that? And can you do that in a team context where several people are working with each person that's coming forward? That's what our, our approach has to be. We've got to get rid of the whole spectator sport. You know, I want you all to, like at the beginning of worship, go, put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. <laughs> you know? <laughs> all right. So <clears throat> let's flip over to the backside and get into today's outline on overcoming unforgiveness and bitterness. And that order is important. Um, I don't know why I'd never caught myself before, but I used to say bitterness and unforgiveness, and I even switched that around from today from some past outlines. And because unforgiveness leads to bitterness. And sometimes you can discern unforgiveness in yourself or someone else, but you almost always can discern bitterness in, in yourself or someone else. Bitterness will affect everything from your approach to finances, to your relationships, to the way you pray, to the way you worship. All right, so let's get started with a few pertinent scriptures. Matthew 5, or I'm sorry, Matthew 6, verses 12 through 15. Hopefully we know now that this is in the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is the foundational beginning teachings of what it means to be a disciple or follower of Jesus Christ. So right from the beginning, John actually did a message on, if you want to scroll back through the uh, Sermon of the Weeks, uh, John did a message some years back called Disciple, uh, Forgiveness, uh, Prerequisite to Discipleship. Because Jesus is basically saying, this is how you begin to be a disciple, by getting the unforgiveness out of your life. And today we have people who are five years in the church, 10 years in the church, 20 years in the church, who don't walk by these principles that we're going to be talking about today. You need to live these as a way of life in your marriage, in the church, I, even where you work. And if you don't live according to these ways, your life will not be blessed. You will not enjoy the abundant life that Christ came for. You will allow the thief to kill, rob, and destroy you. And it's your choice. Forgiveness is a choice. So Matthew 6, Jesus says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, forgiveness is always associated with the concept of perceived debt. This person owes me better than that. 
right there you can see a little pride because nobody owes you nothing. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, you know, all, like take something like road rage. Road rage is just a little kid in a grown-up's body driving around. who hasn't learned to process their emotions past what they should have learned around ages 3, 4, and 5. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some manuscripts say from the evil one. For if I forgive others for their transgression, for if you forgive others, I'm sorry, for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Reading the reverse negative, if you don't forgive others from their transgressions, it won't, your transgressions won't be forgiven you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Jesus didn't even have to say that last line because he said it in the first half by the reading the verse negative. Now, Matthew 18, I don't know, I don't think I want to read the whole story, but you hopefully you'll remember that Peter was a little bit overwhelmed by what Jesus was saying about forgiveness. So he said, like, you know, Anvesh, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? Even up to seven times? Anvesh said, <laughs> no, up to 70 times, seven times. Which, and uh, by the way, if you're still counting at 490, then you probably didn't forgive him the first time. <laughs> So, of course, when, you, uh, when you're married or raising kids, you probably pass 490, but it's, it's a symbolic number for perfection times 10. Like, forgive, forgive, forgive to the nth degree. There's no time that you stop forgiving is what that is actually saying. Okay. Believe me. I got past 490 times needing to be forgiven by Christ in my first year of being a Christian, probably my first month. <clears throat> so, uh, so, and Jesus then, so Peter goes, you know, like, he's, he's like a little overwhelmed. So Jesus tells this story in Matthew 18, all right? So he tells that there was a guy who owed his master 10,000 denarii, or in today's money, it would be about $20 million plus. Now, I don't really know how much money that is because I'm not that successful to even be able to conceive that. I have a couple friends that have that kind of money, uh, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> you have to take several zeros off to get into my league. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, one of the things you need to understand is the first guy was actually a very gifted, mature, spiritually uh, together, powerful kind of guy. You can't get uh, $20,000. No one in our church they could go out and borrow twenty thousand dollars, or twenty twenty thousand. They could twenty million dollars. I meant to say I was already subtracting too many zeros. All right, <laughs> because none of us are in that leak, right? And so understand, this is not a this is not an uneducated backwoods uh, 
not-so-bright kind of guy. This is a mature, talented, uh, go-getter, mover-and-shaker kind of guy. And he can't pay his debts. So he asked his Lord to forgive him. Now, part of the parable is saying, if we really understood the holiness of God and who we are, we really are in the $20 million debt league. It's because we don't see it rightly that we think we're only in the $20,000 debt league or something. In terms of our sins before God, we, not, you know, all, as John says at the end of his gospel, not all the books in, in the world would be sufficient enough to record some of our, the people in this room's sins, right? <laughs> so, his master, moved with compassion, forgives him. Amazing. When you consider what God has done to our account. Then he meets his fellow servant who owed him a denarii, which in Jesus' day was about 18 cents, but adjusted for inflation in modern times would be about $150. It's been a lot of inflation. Uh, <laughs> about a day's wage, maybe $100. And uh, it's a pretty insignificant amount considering the league the first guy plays in. You know, several of us have the kind of relationship if we took each other out to lunch or something, we, and I, you know, I, I borrowed a couple dollars from Josiah to get a coffee at, at Cedarville a couple times, and he's like, no, don't pay, don't pay me back, forget it, right? So it's that, it's that kind of an amount. Yet, the, he won't forgive his fellow servant. And he uh, actually, you know, has him arrested and so forth. So, uh, the, his, the, the, the second guy's fellow servants go and tell the Lord what the first guy did. Believe me, there will be people who will tell on you. <laughs> As if God needed that. <laughs> but there will be people who tell on you. Uh, then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the tortures until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will, he will, underline he will, also do the same if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Now, uh, this handed him over to the tortures implies more than just demonic bondage. It implies demonic bondage is entering kind of a spiritual condition called the chastisement or the curses of the Lord. There's a realm in Scripture of walking toward the abundant life and blessings of the Lord and progressively seeing that on yourself, your wife, your children, your finances, your vocation, etc., and there's a realm of walking towards the chastisement of the Lord. Now, not every difficult thing a person's going through is the chastisement of the Lord. Sometimes it's a time of character building and chastisement and so forth for the sake of building character, not because the guy did something wrong, as in the book of Job. Job was a very godly guy, 
And his reward was he got to become a more godly guy. <laughs> and the only way you become a more godly guy is to have the snot kicked out of you. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> every promise in the book is mine. Every jot, every tittle, every line. By many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. But let's all sing about that. <laughs> Now, uh, Jesus is not teaching by this, since he's talking about debts, and that they have to be either, that something has to be done with the debts. They either have to be canceled or they have to be paid. We live today in kind of a no-fault God Christianity. We uh, had no-fault divorce come in the 60s. And before no-fault divorce, we had a very low divorce rate. Now we have a very high divorce rate because there's nobody to blame in the divorce. It's just the way we live. And uh, the problem with the whole no-fault mentality is we kind of take that to God today. And almost everyone says, oh, don't worry, God will forgive me. I say that every time I go, go to Esther Price. <laughs> you know, uh, don't worry. You can be forgiven. And uh, the problem is, is when you start saying that about uh, more and more things and things that will really harm you. And sin is something that will really harm you. It will really harm you. Even enough Esther Price will harm you. So you need to understand that there's a thing called sanctions in covenant theology, in biblical theology. In the Bible, there are eight major federal head covenants, starting with the eternal covenant, then the covenant with Adam, Noah, all the way through to the New Testament and the marriage covenant. All of them have a certain set of characteristics of uh, which I normally teach eight, but I've been studying it more lately, and so I'm either going to have to have an eight A, B, C, or I'm going to have to change the 10 or 12, because I've discovered even more ones that I had been missing. So, and, the, and I can't find any books out there that are saying that, so I'm leaning heavily toward writing it into a book. But nevertheless, one of the things that several people point out that study covenants is there are sanctions. There are blessings for obedience and there's favor and reward and, and especially God's presence. I love to say when the book of Revelation says that he comes quickly and his reward is with him, it's because, what? His reward is him. Deanna remembers that. So that's why his reward is with him because he's the reward. A deeper, more intimate fellowship with him is the reward. And until you really kind of get there, you're kind of shooting for, like, the wrong reward. So um, there are sanctions for disobedience. Love requires that. God chastises every son he receives. Not being corrected is the ultimate parental rejection. If your parents don't care about you, they let you get away too much with too much. 
If they care about you, they draw firm boundaries that are well explained as to why they are, and they're the boundaries God would have drawn, not nitpicky legalistic boundaries. Some parents could probably use to learn not to sweat the small stuff. Other people need to learn to sweat the right stuff. You know, when it says to, in Proverbs to chastise your son or discipline your son and do not desire its death, his death, what it's alluding to is that a rebellious son that went too far, if you don't chastise your son and he keeps getting more and more and more rebellious, eventually it's going to kill him. If you don't discipline your son, then you're actually desiring his death. That's why you see every night in the news, you see moms in court going, no, don't put my poor baby in jail just because he killed 27 people. He, he was, had a bad day. He, he didn't do good at math class. <laughs> or whatever. You see that in the news today all the time. Because there's this habit of self-indulgence, indulgence, indulgence, indulgence. And all we care is avoiding pain and, and, and the consequences. We don't care about character. But bad character will inevitably lead to consequences. And as you go up the seven institutions of, of the kingdom, if the person doesn't develop good self-government, then the family has to exercise government. And if the family doesn't exercise government, then the church has to exercise government. And if the church isn't doing a good job with that, which it isn't in our day, then the educational systems, then the vocational systems. It's going to be called not getting those raises and getting fired and getting written up at work and not being able to hold down a job. You know, one of the things we always know we're doing well with as we work with kids and, and, and bring them out of the teenage culture of poverty and so forth, when they stop getting fired at their jobs and they start getting promotions, we realize they're growing in some godly character. That's a good one. That's a step forward in the kingdom of God. And eventually, if nothing else works, eventually the civil government's going to step in and you're going to see them on the 6 o'clock news with their mommy crying, don't hurt, don't, my poor Bobby, he didn't mean to kill 27 people. Right? That's how that happens. <laughs> hmm. All right, Ephesians 4, 29. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That... Uh, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's what happens when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Anyone know what malice is? Malice is ill will. That's, malice is like when you're praying, God, get them there. <laughs> That's the opposite of forgiveness. Malice is ill intent. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Guess what Paul is saying there? He's actually just quoting what Jesus said in Matthew. Forgive us our debts as, as we forgive others. You know, if you start getting a handle on 
One of the keys to learning about forgiveness is to meditate deeply on how much God has forgiven us. Because believe me, you don't see the half of it. And hopefully in your first few weeks to your first year of being a Christian, as you come out of antinomian legalistic Christianity into more biblical Christianity, you begin to understand what he's forgiven me is, whoa, beyond all I could ever understand. He created me for himself. I ran from him for most of my life. And then when I became a Christian, I tried my hardest not to get too zealous and on fire and too radical about it. I tried to stay complacent and mediocre and not, get, not love him too much. I didn't want him messing up my, you know, my priorities and my schedule any. <laughs> didn't we? I don't want to become one of those fanatics who love Jesus more than I do. Just as God and Christ has also forgiven you, ask if that doesn't break you down, spend some time thinking on that. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, you get defiled. Is that what it says? You know, the saddest part about unforgiveness is it will always hurt other members of the family, other members of the body of Christ, and other members at your workplace if there's unforgiveness in the work team. Always. Other people will be damaged by it. A lot. That's why churches split. That's why divorces happen. Unforgiveness has a way of building And he's saying, don't let even a little root, a little seed get starting to germinate. That's what he's saying. Don't even nip this thing in the bud. Yet, all the time, one of the saddest parts of being a pastor is you hear from various people how so-and-so has a problem with you and so forth, but you didn't hear from so-and-so who has the problem. And then you even sometimes invite so-and-so to talk it through, and they are either going to denial about it or they have reasons that they can't make time to get together. And meanwhile, you're sinning against God and the whole church. And in the family, you're sinning against the whole family. In a place of business, you're sinning against the people you work with. Remember what Joshua 7 is about? And anyone know the main title, main guy's name in Joshua 7? A.C. Aiken. Who said Aiken? Aiken, uh, you know, Israel was supposed to devote to destruction is what the Hebrew means. They were supposed to make an offering out of all the stuff in Jericho. In other words, they weren't supposed to save any of it. And Aiken had covetousness in his heart, he said. Well, a few little few pieces of gold here and there and a few nice things here won't. I mean, who's going to miss it? Right? Now, did just Achan perish because of his sin? No. 38 people perished in, in the next attack on the city of Ai. Right? And then eventually Achan got found out and Israel got that out of their midst. 
But believe me, all the time I hear about people who have bitterness against this person, that person, and so forth, and they haven't worked it out. Don't do that. That is really wicked. You might as well spit at Jesus. That's how wicked it is. I could get even grosser than that to try to open your eyes to it, but I won't. It's, it's wicked. It's very wicked. And your flesh has all kind of excuses for why you don't want it. Who likes confrontation? I can honestly tell you that God takes your weak, weakest areas and makes them his strongest areas. I live a lifestyle where I am confronting several people every day about hard to talk about things. That's my life. <laughs> but I don't like it. I didn't want to be a pastor, to be honest. When we, when we were about to start this church, I was like looking for a way out. I was like W.C. Fields. You know, just before he died, they, he was a very irreverent guy, and they caught him reading his Bible, and everyone was a little surprised. And he, and he said, what are you doing, W.C.? He said, I'm looking for loopholes. <laughs> so, I didn't want to start a church because that's what loving people is. Loving people is speaking the truth in love and, and correcting them and challenging them higher. And sometimes they don't like it very much, and I always don't like it very much. I never enjoy it. But it's what I do every day, and it's what you have to do if you want to have a good marriage. It's what you have to do if you want to have a good family. Don't sweep things under the rug where they start to grow roots of bitterness. And it's amazing. They'll act like, you know, a weed that you're pouring a miracle grow on. Especially when you start telling the wrong person. John Luke, just want to tell you about what a thing on Vesh did the other week. You know, and, don't, and, you know, you start doing that. Pretty soon you don't understand why no one in your household likes each other. That's huge. All right. Uh, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to one another, each one with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Did you notice the Bible actually doesn't say don't not be angry? It's all right to be angry. But it's not all right to sin when you're angry. Sometimes you can be angry on behalf of God. Still, it doesn't give you a right to sin. And don't give the devil an opportunity. How does he get an opportunity? When there's unresolved conflicts. The devil's like, ha, 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 I, got, I have my way with Grace Christian Fellowship. God's wanting to do a new outpouring of the Spirit, but there's people who have things against one another in their hearts, so I'm winning. Because people haven't worked out their problems with one another. And, of course, that's especially with leadership because the degree that God wants to use someone in your life, to that degree you'll have spiritual warfare and accusations in your heart against them. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren in, in uh, both the Old Testament and New. Zechariah 3 and Re- Revelation 12, if you want to look it up. Um, now, re- real quick, this... Uh, 
Total Forgiveness Experience, a Study Guide to Repairing Relationships, R.T. Kendall. I've been reading that book this week. I tried finding some other books on the subject, and, and uh, one book I had to give up on because there was so much bad theology. The few points good it was. It was not worth it. R.T. Kendall is always worth reading. I've never read a book by him that's not worth reading. This, the book is very good. The don't let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? Now, don't, rhetorical question. Um, husbands and wives will sometimes, there, there is a place for sometimes when you're having a fight in the family and it's getting late to go, we can't go to bed even though it's two in the morning because we got to get this resolved. Sometimes there's a place to say, you know, we're in covenant, we're committed, we're going to get this resolved. If we have to go get some help, from, we'll get it resolved, so let's go to bed. <laughs> but in general, what he's saying is nip it in the bud. Don't let it start to grow. You find almost any codependent relationship, one of the dynamics will be that one day there's an explosion and at least one of the people didn't know how bad the relationship had gotten. Because there was no walking in the light. All right, so, quickly, some definitions of forgiveness. There's a, actually, chapter 3 is, uh, is, says what forgiveness is not, so I'm going to start there. Because in humanistic contemporary forgiveness, we think that forgiving is to, to understand, like, Oh, John Gray did that bad thing because, you know, he didn't have the best relationship with his father. And, and he was, you know, he, you know, his boss has been really grouchy with him later, lately. And, and we kind of make excuses for the person, right? It's also not approving. Well, it wasn't that bad. I mean, it's only adultery. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's not rationalizing. It's not justifying, it's not minimizing. Those are important words, by the way. It's not pardoning or denying. It does no good in, the, in forgiveness to not understand the size of the offense and the debt thereof. Now, uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. You know, you have the right... To forgive or not to forgive. So I, one, one day I was talking to uh, uh, a mom in the basement and the, her kids were out in the yard playing and they uh, got in the garage and got, instead of getting a wiffle ball out, which is appropriate for the backyard, they got a softball and a bat and they started hitting a, and before long it went through the window. <laughs> and uh, I was sort of hoping that the uh, certain adult individuals involved would pay for it, but they didn't. And I decided, do I want to press this out? No. I said, no, nah, it's not worth it. I make good money. And I forgave them the debt. But that didn't fix the window. And actually, in this particular case, it took me several years to get around to fixing the window. But, but it's fixed now. Thank the Lord. And my wife was so happy when it finally got fixed. <laughs> I don't get to the honeydew projects very quickly sometimes. So, uh, the window still has to be fixed. 
And it would have done me no good to, to like, deny that the window was broken. When Catherine was saying, like, are you going to get that window fixed? It's not really broken. <laughs> that, that wouldn't really work, would it? I tried that one, but no, no, I didn't. All right. Forgiveness is also not reconciliation or restoration of fellowship. That's huge. Because guess what? This is something when you're a young Christian, I would highly recommend you get counsel from someone who's recognized as a leader in the church, an elder, home group leader, someone that people say, you know, this person's mature and responsible. But it's not always even wise to restore the relationship. God does not want you going back into an abusive situation. All relationships have a balance of power, something my wife taught me. And uh, she learned from a guy we were getting counseling from 28 years ago, 27 years ago. And uh, I must not have been paying attention, so she taught me. <laughs> um, sometimes a relationship actually needs a temporary or sometimes even a permanent separation. It depends on the nature of the relationship. And there, you always want to save a marriage if you can. But you don't want to send a wife back into an abusive situation where she might get hurt until there's reason to believe there's been repentance and restoration and a certain amount of growth and fruit and it's headed in the right direction. You know, early in this church, uh, I was uh, out walking one night at like four in the morning down at the, uh, uh, whatever you call it, that track down there. And I saw a guy jogging, and I felt like the Lord wanted me to share with him. And I said, that's a good thing, Lord, but he's like 20, and he's running. I'm walking, <laughs> and if you want me to share with him, you're going to have to work something out because I'm not about to run. <laughs> so turned out he stopped to get a stone out of his shoe or whatever, and I walked by him said, hey, you want to walk a few laps? And we did, and I shared the gospel with him. And today he's in jail for the rest of his life. He's eligible for a parole in another 98 years, having served about six years. And uh, his wife started coming, and we had reason to suspect that he was beating her. And uh, she was about 20, but she became friends with our youngest daughter, who was 12 or 13 at the time, because like spirits attract, and they were both about the same maturity level. So... Uh, that, you know, people will always develop, develop the best relationships in the church with the people who are at your own spiritual level. Uh, not that you shouldn't press past that or we can't have community, but people will do that. People will be attracted, like if someone's bitter, they'll be attracted to the bitter people. If they're rebellious, they'll be attracted to the rebellious people. If you're childish, you'll like the childish people. That's just the way it is. If you're really childish, you won't like any people. <laughs> You'll, you'll be like, I'm not into this community thing. So, um, so what in this particular situation, uh, we eventually uh, had our youngest daughter, Elizabeth, re read a bunch of stuff about um, um, the idea of an intervention. 
And we got some people in the church together, and Elizabeth was the team leader, and she led an intervention at the age of 13. And it was, she did it very well, and she really had read up on it, and she knew what she was doing, and she, she and, and we basically got the woman to open up, yes, he's been beating me all along, and in fact, he had put a taser to my neck when I was breastfeeding our child, and he told me, if you ever leave me, I'll kill you. That's always part of the abusive syndrome. And so... Elizabeth said, this is a one-time only offer. We'll get you out of that situation, but not, not, not tomorrow, only if you're going to go today. And we got her to the Y Women's Shelter, and the next day, Elizabeth and I drove her to Michigan to a pastor's place to escape her husband. And uh, within a couple months, he was in jail for uh, serving 100, uh, 150 years or something, with eligible for parole in 106 years because of various rapes and murders. So, uh, he wasn't the nicest guy. <laughs> so, you know, that uh, has to be done sometimes. You know, we try to help people, but sometimes that was the best way to help this young lady, and she now lives in another state with a new life with their kid and, and, and has done very well. All right, so what forgiveness is, is uh, tearing up the IOU. But I, I, by the way, I shared that story to say it would never be wise for her to restore that relationship, nor would it ever be wise for her to even let her baby know, who's probably like 12 now, who, her da- who the dad was. So... The, the, the guy was such a bad dude that several guys that are from these neighborhoods, when they heard his last name, wouldn't go with us to get the furniture out and so forth because they were too scared of the family. I went anyway. But that, I'm still here. Uh, forgiveness is tearing up the IOU. So it's important that you understand how much the debt is. Not minimize. That's why you can't rationalize it. You can't say... Oh, it was just a couple murders. What the heck? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, they had a bad family they came from. This guy had a bad family he came from, but that doesn't make him not responsible for his murders and rapes. Right? Doesn't matter that, you know, most of his uncles and dad and everybody else were in prison for murder. That doesn't give him an excuse. We want to use modern psychology to give people excuses. You can't do that. I'm not saying you can't have a little degree of compassion about uh, that they have a difficult life, but if you focus on that, there's no way out for them. Acceptance as you are, empowerment to grow. If you blame, shift, excuse, make, rationalize, you're, you're disempowering yourself. I can't change how my mother was or whether she bit me when I was five or not. I can change if I forgive her. Does everyone get that? That's huge. Don't excuse, make, blame, shift, or rationalize for bad character and lack of growth and not taking counsel and not studying it. And all the things that go into being more Christ-like. But 
cancel the debt. You have to realize what the debt is before you can write it off, right? You can't just write off like, well, it was a certain amount of debt. Do you do that at the bank? <laughs> you know, well, we'll just forget about how much the debt was. No, that you have to write off this the amount of debt it is. That I I I uh, have gone over my time, but you've got to get that point. Because what we do today is we just emote and empathize and and blame shift and excuse make for the person we're forgiving. Don't do that. Nextly, and that's probably all the further I'm going to get for today, uh, pray for blessing. Now that's brought out in the book, and I'll tell you, uh, boy, I think I'm going to just have to start next week with telling some testimonies of praying for blessing. And uh, Stephen and uh, Deanna, make, make some notes to remind me this week to start there next week. Um, it's really, really important that you go beyond canceling the debt and start praying for the person in the proper way. We'll talk about that next week.